0: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al. On this
1: episode, Grizz will be speaking to the artist Kerry James Marshall, best known for his large-scale paintings of African-American life.
0: His high-profile collectors and fans include the Obamas, Beyonce and Jay-Z, Drake, Dr. Dre, and Kanye West, now known as Ye.
1: In fact, P. Diddy bought a painting of his called Past Times earlier this year, for $21.1 million, making Kerry James Marshall the most expensive-living African-American artist. So, Grizz, you went to visit Kerry James Marshall at David's Werner Gallery this week. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know his work, can you give us a flavour of it?
0: Yeah, so Kerry James Marshall is much better known in the US where he's from than he is here. He is known for these often very large scale paintings, almost like kind of contemporary history paintings. But rather than depicting kind of grand figures from Western history, they show often quite intimate scenes of daily life. So a couple embracing families in parks, a scene with children running around in a hair salon. They've often got sort of little nods and hints to great works of art history, which... Specific works. Yeah, so like Holbein's The Ambassadors, for example. There's a famous painting which alludes to that work, but you find these kind of, these references and these little hints and jokes all the way through what he does. I guess one of the most striking things about his work is... That so he's painting African Americans almost exclusively, but he renders skin tone with literally black paint. So the skin tone of the characters in his work is not the skin tone of real life people. I mean, he uses like black pigment, and he's making a political point through doing that, but it's very it's very, very striking. You have to look very closely at the work and look for quite a long time, almost actually for your eye to adjust and to see all these different blacks and the way that he models skin and form.
1: So his work is on now in in London but Mm -hmm. is it generally easy to find a Kerry James Marshall?
0: Yeah I mean there is one in Tate which is on show at Tate Britain at the moment and Tate only bought this painting this year. I mean he really hasn't been like a, a household name and probably still isn't in this country but recently he has really shot to fame particularly in the US. He had this amazing and huge retrospective, I think from 2016 to 17, which I saw at the very end of it last year in LA, but it traveled from Chicago to the Met in New York, to MoCA in LA. And this was a complete revelation for me. I had seen like a very small show of his at David's Verna about four or five years ago. And I was very struck by it, but sort of saw it completely without any kind of context. And then I saw that he was on in LA and basically designed this road trip that Tom and I were doing with some friends around going to see the show and took everyone to see it and it was um it was completely amazing. It's the whole of his of his work ranging from these very famous kind of figurative depictions to a comic book series that he does called Rhythm Master, which kind of takes the idea of a black superhero to more abstract works. He, I mean he's kind of an artist of amazing range.
1: Okay. So how significant is he as a contemporary artist and and more broadly, you know, how significant? Is he in you know, the history of art?
0: I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his, but I don't think it's an overstatement to say that he's one of the most important contemporary artists and certainly... Why? ...painters. But uh, because what he's doing is he's taking art history, he's finding what is a huge lack and absence, which is black figures in art history, and he's changing the course of art history, I would argue, by inserting black life into art history, but doing it in such a highly technically skilled, so accomplished way that these paintings kind of fit seamlessly into a museum. And yet, I mean, they're really challenging the kind of content of what else is in the museum.
1: So he's shifting perceptions of of art, who is depicted in it and who gets to make it. Is that right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I'd also argue that probably who goes to see it. I mean, I think... It's been proven that when museums put on shows that reflect more diverse ethnic audiences, those people come to the museum who otherwise might not come. So actually it's also, it's changing the whole kind of ecosystem of art, of the people who are in the pictures, but also the people who are looking at the pictures. And that's kind of what he's doing in this latest show. He has has an amazing picture, which I talked to him about actually, which is lots of black school children kind of gathered around under a painting, learning about it.
1: The title of the exhibition, History mm. of Painting, that covers quite a lot, doesn't
0: it? It's quite, it's quite bold, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and the show that I saw in LA was called Mastery. You know, he... So he's I mean, not, did
1: he strike you as very confident?
0: No, he's incredibly unassuming, very warm, very generous. You know, gave me sort of two hours of his time just before his exhibition was about to open.
1: So, did you like him?
0: Yeah, I really liked him. I mean, like... This was a privilege. I was, you know, I was meeting a hero.
1: More even than Stephen Mangan?
0: Well, I didn't meet Stephen Mangan, but yeah, I mean, this is a different, this is a different thing. No, you know, no offence to Stephen Mangan, but.
1: Well, um, with apologies to Stephen Mangan, let's listen.
0: (laughs) Well, it's lovely to meet you. Good
2: to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: So the show is called History of Paintings. And it strikes me that that really sums up your kind of artistic endeavor for the last kind of four decades or more, that there's an engagement with painting's history, and particularly with the Western canon.
2: Yeah. When I think about my perspective on what it means to make art, I take a really broad and kind of long view, because I've looked at just about everything. Everything that's been done, everything that can be done, so I've made sure I was familiar with the kind of the impulse to make stuff. The Western tradition though is driven by different kinds of necessities and the reasons for making artworks have changed radically. And so I'm I'm interested in the motivation and the impact that has on what you choose to do.
0: And that impact on what you've chosen to do. There's a lot of reverence for, for all the, the painters that have gone before and the kind of people that you can see down the road in the National Gallery. But you're also bumping up against that tradition.
2: Am I right? I mean, to the degree that anybody who makes a thing now uh, and wants to gain an audience's attention needs to do something that has a kind of singularity. But it's less about it, about changing the narrative as much as it is about participating and finding a way to be relevant to it. And as a consequence of being in it and relevant to it and doing what I'm doing, it might affect some sort of change in people's expectations. But I'm not trying to dismantle the canon, the museum. <laughs> you know, on some level, the goal is to match the brilliance and the success and the, the complexity of things that are, already there, the that, that things that you were introduced to that caused you to want to be an artist in the first place.
0: <laughs> and to, to allude to it in, in lots of very subtle ways, mm-hmm. but at the same time, to do something which strikes me and, and strikes lots of people who, who love your work as being, in a sense, very different. I mean, the black figures that we see in your work, you know, those are not the figures that you see in the Met, in the National Gallery, so...
2: Right, up to the degree that, determined by the fact that I'm making them, mm-hmm. you know, and and... I have a choice. Either I can reinforce the dominance of the image that's already there, or I can, I can produce images of the kind that I am more familiar with and would like to see represented more. I can produce those images and produce them in such a way that when you put them in there next to those things, they command as much attention as the things that are already there. What else would I do? I and mean, why wouldn't I make images of black figures? you know, as a black Absolutely. person in the world, why wouldn't
0: I? So the work that you've made in, until this point has been dominated by black figures. I saw your it has. A, a re- a retrospective mastery mm-hmm. in L.A. last yeah. summer. And the, the work that I've just seen today at David Sperner, some of those canvases, they're abstract. They're, well, they seem abstract. They seem figurative.
2: abstract. They only some seem of them don't
0: have figures in them. Right. Is it a shift in your work?
2: No, I mean, it's, it's not a shift. I take a fairly broad and fairly long view of what it means to make artworks. Mm. One of the goals artists have pursued, I think, is to be free from limitations that are imposed by the academy or some other institutional authority. For some artists, being free from that was being free from the requirement to represent things as they appear to be. Of course, the trajectory led to what people call abstraction. But then abstraction becomes a kind of a trap too. Why is that? Well, if you take a lot of these ideas to their logical conclusion, you've done the least that's possible to do to constitute a thing called a painting.
0: So it's kind of written its own end.
2: So it's, right. If you reach that end point, then what do you do? do? You stop, and you could, some artists do, but then you can find out whether or not the history that we know of painting... If they've covered all the ground, if they've done all the things that can be done, and if they haven't, then you can find those places where, where there are absences and where there are gaps and where there are inadequacies. And you can actually spend some time resolving some of those inadequacies. And, and that's, that's a part of what you that's about. a part of what right mm. a part of what I was doing. But so the the lack of representation of black figures in paintings that are in museums is a challenge to fill that lack. So when the works that seem abstract Mm -hmm. come into play, it's that, well, for me, to be completely free as an artist means that you are free to do anything you want to do if the idea presents itself to you as something worthwhile to pursue. Because I make figures doesn't mean that making work that appears to be abstract is not available to me.
0: And it's interesting that the work that, that you started to make was figurative painting at a time when you know, the predominant white art world saw figurative painting and even painting that was abstract as, <laughs> as unfashionable. But it wasn't unfashionable to you because you were doing something different. Is that... In a part, find?
2: because some of... My thing has always been... I am the one who decides whether a genre or area of working is exhausted or not. To me, there really is a necessity to see more images of black figures in paintings that find their way into museums. And that's completely independent of what some small segment of the art world that feels like they have exhausted Mm. all these possibilities.
0: So the question is, who decides?
2: (laughs) It's who decides. If I'm familiar enough with the way in which the whole idea of art has been organized, constructed, and codified, then I get to choose.
0: And also you choose what aspects of Black contemporary life you're showing. So Absolutely. So it's interesting that the people that you represent, I mean, just thinking of, of the show that's, that's about to open, you know, we see a woman taking her dog for a walk. We mm-hmm. see everyday life in mm-hmm. other works. We see couples and kind of intimate mm-hmm. scenes. We see people on dates. We see families. This isn't purely the kind of representation of African-American life that we see in the media, which is kind of against a context of police violence.
2: In part. I mean, there are things that I don't do. Even if I address a history of violence or a history of deprivation or a history of poverty, there's a way that I do it that's more oblique, mm. that's less connected to a kind of photojournalistic narrative. There are things that I'm not interested in representing because I think they feed too much into conventional assumptions about what it means for black people to be in a place. You don't see images of black people in trauma in my work. You don't see images of black people who are abject. But what you do see is a way of trying to, representing black people in the the most ordinary, the most mundane, the most everyday kinds of attitudes. They're not simply there as a sign for people to read to confirm some assumption they already have. That if you look at those figures, they seem to be self-possessed. That matters a lot to me.
0: Well, it's doing the opposite of confirming an assumption that a white viewer might have. It's well, than any viewer that. would have,
2: and then since the art-going public is largely a white audience, you know, the museum-going public is largely a white museum-going public. I take a certain responsibility to the way I project the image of a black figure into that space. What you can read from the history of painting or the history of image making: white people seem to like themselves. They seem to like themselves. They like what they look like, they like what they do, and they like seeing themselves with each other. (laughs) But there's no corresponding genre in which black people seem to like each other, seem to like themselves, seem to like what they look like, and seem to like what they do. Because the narrative of being black in the Western Hemisphere is a narrative that comes from having been conquered, colonized, and enslaved. That narrative sort of sets up an expectation where the only way you can envision the ideal of what beauty and pleasure and joy and all those things is almost always has to have a white representation associated with it. That black people don't see themselves and other people don't see black people as being representative of those kinds of emotions, those kinds of feelings. We don't think of black people in (laughs) joy.
0: Is that why your work is often so breathtakingly beautiful. Well, I hope they're so. Beautiful. I, hope I hope they so. are. So you're, you're playing with the idea of beauty. I hope
2: they are. Even as I'm making images that I think are ordinary, I'm trying to also make sure they have an element of poetry to them. That's what I try to do.
0: And they're often on a huge scale. Mm-hmm. Is scale important?
2: Well, it is. I mean, it's kind of
0: monumentality,
2: but it comes out of the tradition. I mean, that sense of grandeur. I mean, you have to say, well, do you, do you feel entitled to that too?
0: When you were growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, and then in L.A., Mm -hmm. did you see that in your peers as a child? Did you see kids who felt, as you put it, entitled to a kind of grandeur?
2: So in Birmingham, though, I mean, kids were kids.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you were young man?
2: I mean, you were young, right. So you didn't have, you don't have that bigger conception of what it means to be in the world. You don't really have that.
0: That becomes something that you develop as a consciousness.
2: Right. It it only happens later. So, when you're, when you're young, you take everything for granted. So, I started out in, in kindergarten, I started at a Catholic school. When you go into the church, there's a statue of Jesus, there's a statue of Mary, there's a statue of Joseph. And then, on the pop culture and pagan side, you know, there's Santa Claus, there's in the fairy tales, there's Snow White, Rose Red, there's Sleeping Beauty. There's, I mean, these are all images of white people doing special things, being special people. Mm-hmm.
0: Was there a moment
2: when that happened for you? In 1968, when Marvel Comics introduced the superhero the Black Panther into the comics. And the moment that character, all of a sudden, the idea of a black superhero became a possibility that you had never considered before. Because before that, what was a superhero? He was Superman, he was Batman, he was The Flash, he was Aquaman, he was all those characters. And I think the way language reinforces this sort of special status... You pick up those first groups of Marvel comic books, and here are the titles. It's The Amazing Spider-Man, The Fantastic Four, The Incredible Hulk, The Mighty Thor. Listen to that. And that's never applied to you. Mm. Then you can't help but somehow feel diminished in relationship to that.
0: But What was the point that you decided, as an artist, I have the power to change the way that black people are represented, that that I can represent these qualities, mighty, amazing, or just every day?
2: So when I started out, I was driven by this need to know what it was the artists I was looking at in art history books knew that made it possible for them to do the work they did. Do you mean like in terms of technique, composition? Knowledge. And so I spent my time reading those biographies and reading those books trying to find out what it was they knew. If you could know what they knew, then you could do what they did. If you look at Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks, I mean, a good part of what he was doing was a kind of scientific investigation on the structure of the body, the ways in which the eyes work. He looked at the way water flowed. It's like, okay, if knowing how the body worked internally made it possible for you to make drawings that look like those, then you need to know how the body works internally. You need to know the structure of things. And so perspective.
0: Work and you
2: worked. So sure. I, right. I said, when other artists were saying that painting and things like that were obsolete, and I said, well, they don't decide what's obsolete for me. I went through every genre, every methodology of making works that I could understand. If you allow somebody else to limit your possibilities, because they tell you that there are things you shouldn't know, then we're right back where they started from. And for black people in particular, we're right back at a status that allowed for black people to be to ultimately be enslaved because a part of the reason why black people had been enslaved because they didn't have access to certain kinds of technological advances that Europeans had. Mm. They didn't have guns. They didn't make cannons. <laughs> they didn't spend a whole lot of time engineering weapons of war. That put you at a disadvantage and when it came time to compete they were unable to compete.
0: Whereas what you're saying, what you have done in your career, in particular as a young artist, is a kind of equipping yourself. It's, it's equipping absolutely. yourself with knowledge.
2: Absolutely. With
0: the way that paintings are made.
2: Every kind of painting. Every kind of painting. And to understand something about the reasons why you would choose to do that as opposed to doing something else.
0: And so, looking at all these different ways to make paintings, why was it that you settled on the style that you are most known for? Going mm-hmm. around mastery, mm-hmm. there is a kind of visual thread that links a lot of these. Right.
2: Well, there part of that... Complex,
0: you know, compositions. Right.
2: That's one thing.
0: The color of the figures, the figures thing, you know, they're, well, li- they're literally black. The
2: other thing, right, which is, so in painting, there's a case that be made that using black paint was a taboo of a sort. If you're thinking chromatically, then black was always seen as the color that diminished and killed color as opposed to enhanced it. And so I think set about trying to figure out a way to make black chromatic too. You'll find out that black is already chromatic, that they are warm and cool blacks, just like there's a warm and a cool green.
0: But that's not something that you could learn from the past masters. Because they didn't because use they black. they weren't doing that.
2: They don't, right, and even modern painters would say, mix a black, don't use a black. So I say, but if you could take carbon black, iron oxide black, and an ivory black, also called bone black. If you take those three colors, they all look different from each other just out the jar. You can take black paint, and you can do the same thing that you would do if you were using blue paint. Side by side, you put them on top of each other, they do. They look different.
0: And why did you choose not to use other tones of pigment that could describe the skin of an African American, like browns? I mean, there's so many different colors that are in skin. <laughs> yeah. Why, why did you choose these well, restricted palette of blacks?
2: But it, it's... Not restricted, but but it's it's specific. It's specific. I mean, initially when I started using that black color, I was using black as a rhetorical device. So in the language of race, we talk about black people, we talk about white people. And so if you're going to say that, then do that. Mm. So let the figures be the embodiment of the, the concept that defines them. So that means that I can paint my figures black, really use black.
0: Did you start off painting from life? Did you have people in the studio?
2: Well, I started out, I had people posed for a photograph that I took.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I was mainly only photographing because I wanted to use the posture and the, the clothing. But I was going to paint those figures black, and so I never used their head in the figure. Mm-hmm. Because I, I decided, I, was, I didn't want to take people who were light brown skin and paint them black. I started inventing my figures completely. So that I wanted figures that were born to be black. So they're all made up and worked in such a way that they have a certain kind of, there's a certain kind of reality about them.
0: Mm. There's a real reality about them. Yeah. I mean, when you look at them, but there's also a sense of, in a strange way, there's a sense of narrative, I find. There's a sense that these are people with a story and something's happened and we've caught them at this moment in the story. And what's, (coughs) what's happening, I mean, do you, is it tempting well, to imagine a life for these people? Do you,
2: but I'm, I'm, not, I'm less interested in trying to imagine a life per se, mm-hmm. but I'm really interested in, in the way they are presented as a presence. I mean, they're really not particularly narrative. I mean, they, they're yeah, doing I mean, something, I mean, but I mean,
0: there's... I the scenes with multiple figures at the barbers or in the park, mm-hmm. or th- that we caught them at a moment of
2: you can, right, action. Right, but you can build a, narrative, but they're just there. And it's the being there part that matters a lot to me. It's recognizing them as being in the world.
0: And being in the world and doing something not out of the ordinary.
2: Not out of the ordinary. <laughs> you know, that's...
0: The just going for a walk in the park. It is.
2: It's that thing. It's like, do we always need to see black people being uh, bitten by a police dog? Or shot by a police officer, hanged, or beaten, or discriminated against, or, or in the gutter, or something. I mean, is that what we really will, is that what we really are interested in seeing?
0: Well, it's interesting because there's also at the other end of a kind of spectrum. There's a you know a theme of contemporary life around black excellence and the idea of black genius. And, and I'm not
2: even doing that.
0: Well, well, exactly. I mean, that's at the other end of kind of police. Violence.
2: Right. I'm not trying to make them more special. I mean, I'm not doing highlights. It's like mm. these are not superstars. I don't do celebrities.
0: <laughs> do you think the idea of um, the idea of black excellence of Beyonce of Donald Glover, like I mentioned, celebrating people who are at an extreme of success mm-hmm. and achievement, is that in its own way problematic? I mean, if you focus
2: too much attention on people who seem exceptional, I mean, it's like the vast numbers of people who get left behind. I mean it. Really, transformation takes place at the level of the ordinary. I mean, it's when it becomes commonplace, when everybody feels like they have a stake, everybody feels like they have potential, everybody feels like they have access. That's where you're really talking about transformation. I mean, we're not talking about movie stars and stuff.
0: There's a kind of problem if, in order to be invited to the table, As a black person you You
2: have have to to be be exceptional.
0: Excellent. You have to be It's
2: the guess who's coming to dinner syndrome. It
0: will yes.
2: It's like yes, okay, he's acceptable because he has got a PhD, he's a doctor, he's got a practice, he's got all of this stuff. This makes him kinda okay. To me that's all wrong.
0: Does the job of painting get easier as you
2: get older? No, I think it gets harder. It should get harder. I mean the thing is it's it's harder to decide what to do. You know, on the one hand if there's a demand for the work you're doing, it's easy to kind of pump out a lot of them that seem, you know, that satisfy that demand. But I'm not interested in doing that. I deliberate quite a lot on the work I'm doing. The more work you do, the more impossible it gets to do other work. The space for doing things that really are worthwhile just gets smaller and smaller. I think a lot about what's worth doing So if I'm going to be making images of black people that ultimately end up being sold, it matters to me what kinds of images I'm putting in the marketplace. I'm not just going to put anything out just because I can.
0: Is this one of the reasons why the work that we see in this new show is quite different?
2: I mean, I think of what I'm doing as being idea-driven. But in a show where you're talking about the history of painting, I'm really sort of examining for myself on some level... And then for the spectators, what some of the, the challenges of making paintings have been. If we go through that show and you look at the differences, that show is organized around three moments in the idea of what it means to make paintings. One is the sort of, at the rudimentary level, at this basic level, what a painting is. Another is how we come to learn about and experience and understand the value, the history and the value of painting. And the other is the ultimate outcome of where paintings end up.
0: So there's a painting of the interior of an an art museum. Of a museum. And all the figures in the museum are black. Are black. And the the art on the walls, it almost looks like it's been obliterated, like it's been wiped out or it's...
2: None of those things are, are particular particularly clear mm. and the painting that's being talked about is unavailable to us because it's the whole it's the whole thing mm. in that sense so painting is pedagogical we learn about painting from experiences like that's how we know
0: so there's these school kids who are sitting they are,
2: they are being taught painting. they're being told this is what it is this is how it is this is what's worthwhile
0: so what is the painting saying about who's learning and what's on the walls.
2: Black kids learn about painting the same way everybody else learns about painting. You get taken to the museum too, and somebody tells you what these things are and what they're about and what they're for. And so our concept of what the the value of painting comes from those museums too. That's what that picture is about. Like the color it is and everything, and the title, that Untitled Underpainting, foundational,
0: it's in a kind of, it's in brownie
2: kind of gray tones. Right, the brown, well, it's, it's like if you, you know, the, the unfinished Leonardo, Saint Jerome, mm-hmm. all those unfinished paintings that in that brown underpainting that, and then they, you, you do the colors and everything on top, that's what that painting is. Mm-hmm. It's one of those. It's the foundation of how it begins. This is how it starts. If you go back to the statement that Andre Duran made that a painting is simply lines and colors arranged in a certain order. Mm-hmm. And then you could look at a picture like that, and you you can understand that it's there's no requirement to do more than that to end up with a thing that provides a satisfying experience. At the end of that, you have these sort of paintings that are based on the auction sale price of paintings at a particular in a particular year on a particular day at a particular auction house. At the end of it all, this is what these this is where these where these paintings end up. They being end up being traded. As uh, objects and commodities just like cantaloupes and watermelons and bananas. I mean, on some level.
0: <laughs> Hence the supermarket flies. Yep.
2: I mean, That's they end about. up being traded just like that kind of stuff.
0: And so the value that we place on them from it's, the level of the museum, that translates to the auction
2: it, house. It, it absolutely. All, it's, auction. All mm-hmm. it's all intertwined. It's all intertwined.
0: Kerry, thank you so much for talking to me. You're
1: welcome. <laughs> That's it for this week. We will post a link to Grizz's piece on Kerry James Marshall on our Facebook page,
0: and his exhibition History of Painting is at David's Werner Gallery in London until the tenth of November. I highly recommend it.
1: Next time we'll be looking back at The Big Lebowski twenty years after it was made, and how the dude became an icon for a generation of lazy men
0: and al will be chatting to the comedian james Veach.
1: let us know what you think of the podcast we'd love to hear from you on facebook.com slash everything else podcast or by email everything else at fp.com
0: if you like what you hear please do subscribe and please also leave us a rating or review on apple podcasts
1: everything else is produced by cheaper airs
0: we've been grizz and al
1: And our music is composed by Fat.